Well, good morning, church, and happy new year. I hope this past week or so has been a great time getting together with your loved ones and creating new memories, hopefully all good ones. Um, Last week, we took a short break as we were able to get together on the rare opportunity and celebrate the birth of our Savior on Christmas Day. Found out, actually, in the meantime, um, it's going to be another 11 years before we will able to have Christmas Sunday again. Um, And you would think... Uh, as I thought, that it would be every seven years. But then there's leap years, and leap years toss a wrench in the works, and it's kind of random. It's not even, it's not like it's every 11 years consistently. It goes back and forth. So the things you learn uh, when you do some quick Google searching, right? Um, Okay, so speaking of learning, before we move on to anything new, I think, uh, especially with a new year, let's first take a moment and reflect on what we've been learning as we are actually about to close up the book of Colossians, which is our memory verse that we have been saying together. So we'll actually be saying this. This is our last time saying this memory verse together. So uh, together, we can sing it together. Okay, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. There you go. That's Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Good job. We're actually going to be covering this source text today. As we've been looking at this set of verses for a long time, since the beginning of when we started our time in this epistle, Um, and finally today we will see in context why Paul said these very words, what he was expecting and where he was coming from and where he was going to. So we'll actually finally put this piece of the puzzle together as we finish up our time in the book of Colossians. Now, as we're starting out this new chapter of Colossians, Paul is going to be continuing on from his previous thought that we had a couple of weeks ago. So that would have been two weeks ago, last time we were in Colossians, uh, and he'll be wrapping up his letter. And now, if you don't remember, two weeks ago, uh, we had a message titled, The Sincerity of Our Hearts, uh, and we covered the second half of chapter 3. And those words, Paul was speaking, and he was instructing believers to constantly be putting God's word to memory. Um, and as he was saying this, uh, he, he mentioned uh, that we should be doing this by putting them to song and to sing them, to put them in and to rememorize them. And the reason for this, if you remember also, is because the average churchgoer in his day didn't have access to the Word of God the same way that we do. Only the temples had the Word of God, and even if people had the access, most of them couldn't read anyways. So Paul encouraged people to actually put God's Word to memory by singing it in song. He instructed the church to put those words together and to sing them with their children wherever they were going and to encourage each other. Now, as you probably already know, singing is a great way to help us to remember. Now, in our house, uh, as we have been training our children, especially when they were a little bit younger, we were training them to listen to God's word and to follow through what they've been instructed. Uh, We taught them the obedience song. Has anybody ever sung the obedience song? Has anybody ever heard the, it might, uh, maybe it's something my wife came up with. I don't know. Uh, Okay, so I'm going to do a really, really poor rendition partly. Uh, It says, obedience is the very best way to show that we believe O-B-E-I-D-E-I-N-C-E. Well, I spelled that 
that wrongly, and I was about to actually, there's a, I just ruined an entire point on this entire thing. Wow. O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. There you go. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Now, obedience, the obedience song, not only does it tell you, hopefully, to, uh, to remember to obey and to show that we obey by follow through with our actions because, you know, if someone hears something doesn't mean that they've actually listened. Uh, obedience is shown through our actions and hopefully the song uh, teaches you better than it has me how to spell obedience, which uh, obviously it didn't work very well, so I've got to re-look at the song one or two more times. Did she teach them an opportunity song too? Yeah, she teaches them a bunch of random songs. My girl's been singing this opportunity song for like two weeks. Yeah, yeah, Alicia... Alicia does a bunch of random little songs, so yeah, you'll hear it. So you'll hear, actually, Alicia and I will mutter these songs to ourselves as we're trying to remember, like, like when you're trying to remember obedience and how to spell it, because it's spelled kind of weird, uh, you'll hear us kind of muttering the song to ourselves as we're trying to write out the word obedience. Uh, it's mostly effective, more for her than it is for me. Now, Paul recognized the power that songs have to help us when we memorize Scripture, And this is why it's so important even when we choose to listen to different songs throughout our daily lives because we start to memorize those lyrics internally even if we don't uh, automatically remember and notice it. Now in chapter 3, Apostle also spent most of his time talking about a very central theme. He talked about servanthood. He started with our roles as we serve one another in our family. Uh, We as parents, uh, we lead. But the best leaders are servant leaders. Um, The college I attended in West Virginia, Appalachian Bible College, decided uh, that they liked this idea of servant leadership so much it became the central theme of the college. Um, And it's based on this idea that we should all become servant leaders. Um, And they took this idea from Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, as it says these words, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul himself chose to model his own life after this very way of life. He saw life as a vessel not only for him to serve others, but to bring them to Christ. This is what he passes on to each of us in his own instruction in the way he writes. When he spoke of the nuclear family in chapter 3, he called out each member. He called out the mother, he called out the father, and he called out the child. And he instructed us to serve those around us that that God would have blessed us with in in a way that only we could. We, We can each serve people in a way that's specific to us and our role. Not to use our position of authority to get our own way. Because we in leadership, and we've all seen leaders who have used their position of authority to get their way and it hasn't always been the best thing. It hasn't always been the best outcome to get their agenda. And I think this is the very idea that drove Paul to call himself a bond servant. Uh, and he was a willing, lifelong slave to Jesus Christ throughout his life, to follow God's will in his life. Now, we ended our sermon uh, a couple of weeks ago on the idea, as Paul was reminding us, that even those who were enslaved in his day, that they should serve their masters in such a way that they were serving God himself. He says, you know, you're serving these masters, but ultimately we each serve God. And thankfully in our day, uh, we don't have slavery, but we each, uh, we have somebody over us typically. Somebody, uh, we have a boss. Sometimes we have parents in our lives. Uh, we have other people um, in our lives that are over us and they are, they are watching over us. 
And as Christ followers, we are being called to a standard to reflect Jesus' own example, to be servant leaders when we are over others, to become more like Christ, to work as he would. Which brings us to our sermon today, which is continue earnestly, continue earnestly. Today, we're actually only going to be covering two points. It's going to be the same length of sermon, just going to be less points. We're going to be talking about our Christian conduct uh, and then we're going to be doing, uh, the last part's going to be talking about relationship-centered, and that will make a lot of sense, as chapter 4 is really uh, broken up into two parts. Chapter 4 really starts off with his closing uh, couple of words as he's actually winding down chapter 3, uh, and then he does uh, his thanks uh, to a bunch of different people that have been helping him in ministry, uh, and that's kind of the second half of chapter 4, and we'll be covering that um, uh, more broadly. So, Christian conduct. Now, since accepting Christ as Savior many years ago, um, I've always found it interesting that Jesus created everything. Jesus created everything, but he came to serve others. Jesus created everything, but he came to serve others. He deserves all of the honor. He deserves all of the glory. Yet, he willingly gave up the spotlight so that he could be lifting us up. He chose to give up the spotlight for us so that he could lift us up. Now, if you have your Bibles open, you're going to want to be in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1 with me. You're going to have a couple of different references. Some of it will be on the screen. Most of it will be um, available one way or the other. Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. I will have this one here in my Bible. I'm reading out of the New King James as normal. Um, it says, Masters, give your bond servants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, no matter how high you are on the totem pole of leadership, you will never be the one at the very top. Unfortunately, there are a great many human kings, human authorities, leadership, and men or women that thought that they were God in the flesh. Sadly, they were not, nor could they ever be. We try to lift ourselves up often, but Jesus humbled himself, and he became a servant. How many leaders follow this very model? Unfortunately, not many. Not many are servant leaders or willing to become servant leaders. Paul starts off chapter 4 with a very important reminder. He says, if you think you have any authority over anybody else, whether that's the kids in your house, whether that's uh, at a Little League game, should you be volunteering there, or even if you work in something like we have here, Trail Life, and you have kids underneath you or other people, wherever you find yourself serving or wherever you think you have leadership, no matter where you are, no matter what position of authority you think you have, even if it's your younger brother or sister, we should treat them fairly, knowing that we also have a master in heaven who, who could he be talking about? Well, he's talking about God. He's saying we have someone in heaven who's watching over us and treats us fairly. And he's talking about God the Father as he's watching over us because ultimately God, God's in charge, ultimately. Um, and we are just stewards of what he has given us. We, we are responsible for what he has given to us. Our Father treats us fairly. And often he gives us more mercy than we deserve. Anyone here ever experience mercy beyond what they deserved? I've, I've experienced mercy beyond what I've deserved. Paul says, treat others the way that God has first treated you. Treat others the way that God has first treated you. 
Use him as your example, not other men on this earth as your example. Because after all, it's he who we serve. So I'll put verse two on the screen. It says, continue earnestly. There you go. That's why we have the sermon title. In prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. In this one short sentence, Paul tells us three incredibly important truths that are all interlinked. First, he says, continue earnestly in prayer. Now, if you happen to have an NIV, uh, it says, devote yourselves to prayer. Now, what Paul is saying is he's saying, don't just pray occasionally or don't just pray when everything is falling apart. Rather, make a habit of prayer in your life. For me, prayer in some ways is like talking to your spouse. If you talk regularly with your spouse, if you make a habit to cover issues as they arise in your relationship and you work through them and you're constantly building your ability to communicate with them, then you're far less likely to have a major communication problem in your relationship, especially when bad things happen. But I bet we've all probably found ourselves talking to a person that we don't understand. Someone that doesn't understand us because we haven't built a foundation of clear and consistent communication. When we talk to that person, it can become frustrating because we're not understood or maybe we just don't understand them. In saying devote yourselves to prayer, Paul is telling us to put the time and effort to build in a conversational relationship with the Father now. He's saying take, take the meantime when, when things are doing okay, when things aren't falling apart, and start building your foundation now. Because when the time comes, should you not have a good foundation of communication with the Father in heaven, frustrations are going to arise because you won't understand him. You won't understand what he's doing in your life. And he's saying, build that foundation of communication now. Not only does Paul tell us to build our prayer time, but he says, be watchful or be vigilant. Be vigilant. Now, why would Paul tell us to be vigilant or, or keep out on the watch uh, when our prayer is happening? What would be the point of paying attention after prayer? Well, maybe the appropriate question would be, what do you expect as a result of your prayers? What do you expect as a result of your prayers? If you don't expect your prayer to be answered, you don't have to pay attention. If you just lift up your prayers as some religious exercise, there's no need for a follow-up. However, if you believe that God hears all of your prayers and he acts upon them as if he believes and he cares for your prayers, which he does, he cares for us, he cares for what we ask for, then you should keep a watchful eye out for his answer. You should fully expect your prayer to be answered in some way. Now, it was the Apostle John who wrote that we have become the children of God if we have accepted the free gift of Jesus Christ and have been washed by his blood. And now it was the same apostle who wrote in 1 John, named after him, he says, now this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. In Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, Paul has just told us that we should be in the habit of regularly talking to God. So we should develop a habit of regularly talking to God. That when we speak to our heavenly father, we should expect a reply from him. And we should be vigilant, expecting 
his reply from our conversation with him. And finally, he says, do this with all thanksgiving. If you look at the end of that verse, he says, do that with all thanksgiving. Not that we should only do this on the day of thanksgiving, but rather we should always have thanksgiving in our hearts as a continual praise to him. Paul is telling us that we should expect an answer from God, the Father, when we pray to him. We should expect an answer because God wants to answer our prayers. And that as we're waiting for our answer, which comes in his time, not ours, it comes in his time, not ours, that we should be thanking him for what he's about to do. We should be thanking him for what he's about to do, even though it hasn't happened yet. You see, God is good, and he has good things in store for us. Now, Jesus was once talking to this group of people. He was teaching a whole bunch of people a bunch of things that, about God that they they didn't understand before. He was making a lot of clarifications. And he was teaching uh, in, in the book of Matthew, which is where we're about to jump to, and he's on what we call the Sermon on the Mount. You've probably heard those words before. And he's just slowly wrapping up that entire time. Uh, now, if you have your Bibles open, you'll want to keep your thumb here, and you're going to do a little bit of exercise. Turn with me to the first book of the New Testament, which is Matthew. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 7. I want you to see Jesus' very words because these are important when we're talking about prayer and what we can expect from the Father. It's Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. As you're finding your place, Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount uh, and he's going up to his final uh, words here. And Matthew records these words for us. And I'll start in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In Jesus' own words, he describes our Heavenly Father, and he tells us that God wants to give us good things. Very, very clearly in this passage, God wants to give us good things. He has good for you. Jesus says that if you pray and ask for something, God is going to give you something that is for your benefit, not to spite you, not to be harmful to you. Unfortunately, at times, it can feel this way. Anybody who's ever prayed for patience knows this feeling. You pray for patience, and you're like, Lord, why do you hate me? Because you asked for patience, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you there. And sometimes they don't feel like blessings. But God has good in mind for you, and he doesn't hate you. He wants the best for you. And this brings us back to where I started this section, that prayer is communication with the Father. Prayer in itself is communication. If the hard, if the hard times come, and you don't know how to clearly communicate with the one that you are walking through life with, then you're going to get frustrated with them. I've been married to my wife. Uh, we're going to be running on 20 years in August of this year. And 
when we don't have proper communication and hard things come, we get in arguments. I don't know about your family, but, but there are misunderstandings at times. And we are constantly having to work on our communication. And the same thing goes with our Heavenly Father because we won't understand Him. And we won't understand His character if we haven't already developed a time of communication with Him beforehand. The next thing we're going to see Paul do is he's going to give us some very practical application in his follow-up. You can actually see what he expects as a result of his instruction in verses 3 and 4. So we're going to be moving back to Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to be in 3 and 4. I'll put these verses on the screen. Paul says, meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open a door for us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I might make it manifest as I ought to speak. So by his own admission, Paul clearly expects God to act upon our prayers because he's just instructed us. He's like, hey guys, please be praying for us because I know God will do something if you guys ask him. Paul is the one, if anyone in the Bible, I've always felt like Paul would be the guy who could open his mouth and tell other people about the gospel. I always get this idea that Paul is just, somehow he always tells people about Jesus. You ever met that person who just knows how to tell people about Jesus? Like, have you met Jesus? They're really good at it. Like, I'm not that person, but I've always, I've wanted to be that person. I feel like Paul is that person. But I want you to notice that he isn't solely relying on his own ability to have persuasive words. He doesn't just rely on his own ability when he's telling others about Jesus. He's waiting for God to open the door. And he's looking for opportunity, but he's watching God move. He specifically asked not only that God would open a door for them, that he would also be clear in telling other people the gospel. I don't know about you, but this is actually encouraging to me. If Paul needed it, how much more do I need it as I'm watching God to move? Now, I haven't always been the most comfortable in starting a conversation, like I said, But as Paul asks for this, we can see that someone who is a very effective preacher of the gospel to others relies on this very same thing that we can also listen to. He clearly expects God to move because of his prayers. So it's here in context that Paul finally says our memory verses, which should look a little bit familiar. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So the wisdom that Paul has been talking about in our memory verses at the very beginning, the wisdom that has been prayed for, he's saying we're praying for this wisdom and we want God to work in this wisdom. He just not only asked for an opportunity, but also to be able to use that opportunity to its fullest. And he's saying, you know what? Let's walk in wisdom, a wisdom that has been prayed for previously and use that wisdom to its fullest. And we've talked before that the Bible, as it was originally written, didn't have chapter and verse breakdowns, okay? We added those uh, uh, over a thousand years after the original writings of the Bible. So we added chapter and verses. So this is just one regular letter for him as we've trend, uh, we've gone over into the new chapter. So if you actually look at this in context, the last paragraph, as it were, is the, the final paragraph of chapter three. So you can actually pull that as the context. The last paragraph of what I said summed up at the beginning of the sermon, is becoming servants to those who we interact with. 
This isn't just our family, not just our bosses, but it's the people that we interact with daily, regularly. Uh, not, the, not just only the people that we might occasionally meet at the gas station or at Walmart, but the people we interact with regularly. So in context, he's saying the people that you interact with regularly, walk in wisdom towards those people, especially those who are outside of the faith is what he's saying. Each one not only refers to those who you interact with once or twice, but on a regular basis. And Paul is calling us to be servants in all areas of our lives. He's saying, hey, you guys, be servants in all areas. Reflect Jesus who first came and served us. You see, the gospel has always been and will always be, our second point, relationship-centered. The gospel always is relationship-centered. It's about building relationships. So at this point, Paul starts to close up his letters between verse 7 and 17. It's kind of a huge wrap-up. So he's kind of, he wraps up the entire letter and he says a whole bunch of benediction things. <laughs> Paul lists nine different fellow workers, Christian workers that have been helping him out. He goes through a list of nine different people. We're not going to list them all out here, but I do want you to see a couple of them. It's easy if you're just reading this section in your own personal devotions to kind of glaze over this. And sometimes we can miss some of these things until we slow down and take this word by word and verse by verse. We can miss some of the sentiments because there's actually some really neat stuff happening here. Now, I think at one level, we all know that the Bible hasn't been written all by one author at one time, okay? The Bible is written by uh, over 40 authors, and there's over 60 books, and it was written uh, in the span of several thousand years. It was written by, by kings. It was written by prisoners, uh, slaves. Uh, there's a really diverse crowd of people who have written the Bible, who have all been prompted by God. These are memoirs that God has actually prompted people to write down. These aren't some fictional story that's actually, these are real accounts of what has happened. What I love to see is in between the lines, you'll notice as these are real accounts of what's actually happening, you'll see character growth. It's really neat as you watch because these aren't fictional stories. These are real people and you'll see them age over time and they change a little bit in the way that they make decisions. It's really fun to watch. So right here in verse 7, Paul mentions Tychicus. Tychicus, he's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Um, last time we saw him, he was imprisoned with Paul, last time we heard his name, but now he's free and he's delivering messages to people. So it's neat to see that Tychicus is no longer imprisoned, but now he's actually giving messages back to people. In verse 9, we see uh, one Simeus. One Simeus' name, if you're familiar with your Bible knowledge, one Simeus is the slave of a man by the name of Philemon. Philemon should sound remotely familiar as it's a book of the Bible. The book of the Bible is actually written to Philemon about one Simeus being released as a slave because one Simeus had actually run away. Um, so there are others, but there's only one person I really want to focus on in our last couple of minutes of our message. And that uh, we're going to find here. I've got his name in green. So I'm going to read this. Uh, this is uh, chapter 4, verse 10. It says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. So Mark, we now know, is the cousin of Barnabas. You see, this Mark is the same Mark as in the Gospel of Mark. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this Mark, that guy. However, he didn't start his life, he didn't start his journey as a mature Christian. In fact, he started as anything but. And we find that out through the Bible. 
Now, Barnabas had vouched for Paul at the very beginning of Acts. We, if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, at one point, Paul persecuted the church before becoming a believer. Uh, and uh, once he became a believer, uh, nobody believed that he was now a believer. And Barnabas is like, hey, I'll go out on a limb. This guy is the real deal. He has trusted his life to Christ. He has changed. He's turned over a new leaf. Barnabas vouched for him. And so they, they kind of won together for a while. Barnabas has decided to let his uh, younger cousin tag along, his younger cousin being Mark. At one point, it becomes too much for Mark because they go out and they're preaching the gospel and they're traveling to different towns. So Mark turns tail and goes home. And we get this from the book of Acts. And I'll put these up on the screen. Now, when Paul and his party, a bunch of people going out telling the gospel, set sail from Paphos, they came to Ferga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, when you read this, you see, well, that's John. That's not Mark. That, that makes no sense. Why, why would you put that there? Well, well, hold up. Let's skip forward two chapters, and we'll see a, a clear connection here. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord. So they've done a whole bunch of preaching. They're going to go revisit everybody, make sure they're all doing well, see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. So here we find that his given name is John, but everybody calls him Mark. The Bible is its own best interpreter. If we have patience and we are willing to do a little bit of time and digging through the Bible, typically it'll answer our questions all on its own. We just have to take that time and patience. But with that aside, I want you to see that Paul is holding a grudge against another believer. Paul is holding a grudge against another believer. He's like, this guy turned tail and left. I don't want anything to do with this traitor. He left us and we needed him and, and he's no longer there. Paul had been deeply offended by John Mark when he chose to leave the group and go back home. We know he was younger. We don't know the full circumstances. We actually don't know the full reasoning. This is all we're really given. But there's time that happens, and we say time heals all wounds. Time happens between then and now, and growth and maturity happens in both of these men on both ends. Now, remember in Colossians 4.10, he says that if Mark comes, welcome him. And Paul admits that he might have been wrong about Mark, because he says, if you see him, welcome him. Don't do what I did. You know, welcome him. Now he's going to be writing another letter to a church to not repeat his mistake, but rather welcome Mark with open arms. And you could say, well, that's, that's a little bit of speculation, Pastor. Where are you getting that? Are you sure he's really wanting to welcome Mark back? Has he really mended that broken fence? Well, I'm glad you asked. Well, okay, so I said that. Okay, so if you read the Bible, it's its own best interpreter. And we turn to 2 Timothy right here. Paul is once again in prison. Paul is in prison several times. He's in prison, and he says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark. Bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. He's only left with one other person. Luke is there by him. Everybody else has left, um, been, and he feels abandoned in all reality, the way that he writes this. Paul is asking for help because he needs it, because he's, he's left there in prison. And who does he ask for? He asks for Mark, the one who once ran away. 
We are each growing and maturing as we walk forward in Christ. In all reality, we are going to have struggles with one another. Even in this room, as believers in Christ, we will probably have struggles with one another at one point in some way. We're going to have miscommunication. Even Paul clearly had them. The question is, what are you going to do after the miscommunication? Will it hold you back? Or are you willing to regrow and redeem the time as Paul has instructed? So today, we have covered the end of the book of Colossians. And I want to ask you two questions as we wrap up. First question is this. How is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? Is it something that you work on diligently? Are God's answers something you earnestly expect? Have you been expecting and looking for them? Build your prayer life now while the going is easy. Don't wait to be on your knees when everything is falling apart. Trust me in this. You don't want to wait to have good communication all the way until the bad days. That's the wrong time to build a good habit of communication with the Father because you'll be doing it for the wrong reasons and you won't understand his answers. Second question is, what relationship is God putting on your heart? What relationship is God putting on your heart? The gospel, it's relationship-centered. We have all been given second chances. If you are a believer in Christ, you have been given a second chance. The new year is upon us. And I know a lot of pastors are right now speaking uh, in their pulpits about this is a new year. Make your new year commitments. Who has God been telling you to offer a second chance this year? Who has God been putting on your heart to say, hey, you know what? It's time to build that relationship. It might have gone by the wayside. Who is he asking you to treat the way that he chose to first treat you? Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for prompting Paul to write this letter. I thank you for the wisdom that we can learn as we learn to lock in that wisdom towards those who are outside as we redeem the time and speak with sound words seasoned with salt. Father, I ask that you continue to consider the way that we act and interact with those who are outside of the faith and outside of these four walls. Help us to always be about building relationships and pointing them toward you. You are a wonderful creator. And Lord, I love you so much. Lord, I thank you for an opportunity to serve you. Lord, help us no matter where we are found to be servant leaders. Lord, help us no matter how high up the totem pole we find ourselves, no matter how many people around us, help us to always remain humble and to know that you came, even though you deserve absolutely everything, you chose to serve us first. Help us to follow in that model. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for coming. Ladies, I'll call you back up for one final song. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by Scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.